All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for uh, coming today. Thank you all, all of you at home as well who are tuning in. Merry Christmas to all of you guys. Um, we are in a series right now in 2 Corinthians that we're going to continue today, actually. We're going to break for a, a sermon uh, that was a bit more topical, maybe, and uh, Christmassy and focused, but uh, it just so happened that today's uh, regularly scheduled uh, sermon in 2 Corinthians was kind of Christmassy itself. So uh, we're going to just preach through it today, and the next week we'll break for a week to do something a bit more topical and, um, and different, and then pick, pick back up in uh, January with 2 Corinthians, taking us through February. Just kind of get your bearings if you are uh, uh, wondering where we're going to be headed for sermons in the next few months. So, um, but if you have a Bible or a phone app, want to turn to 2 Corinthians 8, that's where we'll be today, verses 1 to 15, uh, looking at this idea of Jesus' poverty and our wealth. If you're just joining us for the first time or it's been a while since you've read the Bible or maybe never read this book before, this is one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We have two of them in the Bible. He actually wrote four, three or four of them. We have two inspired by God written down uh, as letters that are really love letters uh, from Paul to the church, even though a lot of times they consist of some hard truths. Uh, He loves them very much and uh, as is the case many times in the churches of the first century, There is some false teaching infiltrating the church, and so he's writing to kind of dispel that in different ways, and just to write uh, kind of wholesale on what it means to be a Christian uh, in their time, but it also translates to our time, of course, as well, and becomes, as we've been saying in the series, it becomes a letter from God to us, Uh, not just from Paul to this church, but a way for God to call out to us saying, this is where my heart is for you, this is what I am like, this is what my gospel is that you kind of know, but you don't know in a lot of ways as well, and you're growing to know it all the more. And so there's a lot of reminders in these books. They're written to Christians, remember? So when you hear this, this is not, uh, these aren't letters written to people who are not Christians yet, even though it's very relevant uh, for them as well. These are actually letters written to Christians about the gospel they already knew. Uh, And so as is the case in like 1 Corinthians 15, for example, Paul writes, and in Philippians 3, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, uh, or to say things like, this is something I'm, I'm writing by way of reminder for you. You already know this, but I, I want to remind you. It's a joy for me to remind you of these truths that you already know about Jesus. So with that said, let's pick up in chapter 8. There's been a lot of things we've been talking about in this series so far that would take too long to summarize, but I'll recap a little bit as we go. Today's kind of uh, marks a little bit of a change in the letter, though, too. So it's kind of a good, a good Sunday to be here. If you haven't been here so far, uh, we will start kind of afresh with some themes today in chapter 8. So... Let's read it in full to begin. We'll start in in verse 1. Paul speaking today on this, what we'll call, what he calls the collection for the saints, what we call the collection for the saints, uh, and I'll explain that uh, after we read it, Um, but talking about uh, the the churches in Macedonia who are giving to the poor churches in Jerusalem, and he's asking the Corinthians to to kind of uh, uh, to take up as well and help out with this ministry. So, all right, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, 
in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Okay, so that, actually that last verse, Paul is quoting from Exodus 16, 18, which is interesting because it kind of signifies this idea uh, in the Bible that we are, uh, in our own way, experiencing what Israel experienced. We are exodus out of our own Egypt, namely sin and death, and we are in the desert now, heading towards the promised land, being nourished by, uh, as he's alluding to here, this manna bread from heaven that God gave Israel every day in the desert until they entered that promised land. Some of you guys know this story. Uh, we're kind of like that. And so he's talking about the idea of equality and fairness here and supplication and generosity uh, to all the Christians in Corinth and Macedonia and beyond as they, um, as they progress uh, towards the promised land as well. A little bit more on that later, but just in case you're wondering uh, where verse 15 was going, that's basically where it's going. So, Okay, so a couple of things on the collection for the saints. I, I mentioned that before. Uh, this part of Paul's ministry that... Um, he refers to it here as the relief for the saints in verse 4. Uh, but this idea of the collection, of this financial collection for the saints that constitutes a lot of Paul's ministry. So the rest of the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, especially the next two chapters, will revolve around this idea uh, of this relief for the saints in Jerusalem. So he doesn't mention that here, uh, but specifically the relief for the saints uh, in that part of the world. So he's up in the Asia Minor area, kind of northwest uh, think modern-day Greece, uh, but he's more northwest here of uh, Jerusalem, off the northern side of the Mediterranean. Uh, but what's kind of going on here is that in the Corinthians case, uh, and he's already actually talking about this in reference to the Macedonian churches, but a lot of Paul's missionary journeys consisted of uh, collecting financial support uh, for some of his past church plants, uh, from some of his past church plants, and collecting money from them to give to the, relatively speaking, poor churches in Jerusalem. So, in the Corinthians' case, they had expressed interest in this before, but then they had backed down, or at least they didn't, and Paul references this, they didn't finish what they kind of uh, started or uh, planned to finish. So maybe like someone promising financial support to like a church or a person or a missionary, but then forgetting to actually give or not getting, getting around to it. That's kind of what's going on here. But also remember that, the, that Paul's relationship with the Corinthians had been a bit strained at this point, so that also might have been part of the reason why they didn't give yet. And so in today's passage, on the heels of Titus, if you remember from last week, we're turning to him and bringing encouraging news of the Corinthians' repentance, how their heart was becoming softened to Paul, and there was some reconciliation beginning to happen there, and how they wanted, how they wanted to restore their relationship with him and increase it in some ways. 
Paul's kind of taking advantage of that and speaking off, off of that in a way and asking again for their help with this ministry. There are poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that need help. They're struggling. And uh, most Gentile churches in other parts of the world were more wealthy. And so Paul now having some clout with them, knowing them, is kind of circling back through them. Or in this case, sending Titus to them to collect some money uh, to, to bring back to Jerusalem with him. So um, just have that in mind as we go. Uh, it's not important to know all the details of that to understand and get meaning from chapter 8 today, but especially for next week as well. And actually the following week, it's kind of like a three-part series. Have that in mind for the background to um, what's happening here. So one more thing too. Paul is not trying to make them feel bad for being rich. That's important to understand here as well. But to extend that grace, as he calls it, to other believers because uh, they're family with them spiritually. They are one spiritual family with other uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and a financial gift would just be this appropriate physical demonstration of that unity. All right? So, now with all that said, as has been the case so far in 2 Corinthians or in any of Paul's letters and even elsewhere in the Bible too, context uh, paves the way for theology. So, let's, let's go there next. And two big angles today I have, uh, the how and the why. So how is Paul talking about this ministry to the, the poor saints in Jerusalem? And the bigger question, the why. why. Why is this so important? Why is this in the Bible at all? And so that's actually the bigger thing we'll come to last. But let's start with the how. How Paul talks about giving. How the Bible talks about financial giving from one Christian to another or from one church to another church, whether local or in another part of the world. The idea here is that the language we use matters. All right, so the language Paul is using to talk about giving is very specific, it's very intentional, and ultimately we would say, of course, the language God uses to talk about giving is very specific. And that doesn't always jive necessarily with how we talk about giving, so there's room here for us to change and to think about how we, how we think about it, how we talk about it too amongst ourselves. Okay, so to start here, on one level it should be said that the point to this passage and passages like it, this is going to be the case for the next two weeks too, isn't to necessarily perfectly mimic what Paul or the churches are doing for other poor churches in another part of the world, especially Jerusalem. Meaning, if you guys leave here today, leave this room today, not having reached for your phones to Venmo money to a church in Jerusalem, you haven't necessarily failed to apply the passage here. But there are definitely broader principles in play for giving. We are actually, literally, reading about historical Christians giving to one another, right? And the grace there is in that. And that's not a small thing. So actually, as a church here, a lot of you guys know this, but we give money to a ministry called the Timothy Initiative, which helps poor house churches in India and Nepal. And so that could be an expression of this idea as well. If you guys have given to Hiawatha Church financially, part of your money has gone to this. And so in a way, you have done this. A lot of you guys know this, I know. Some of you might not, though, uh, have, have done this or kind of kept with this principle as well of giving to poor churches globally that we are family with. All right, so, but with that said, digging deeper, looking closely at how Paul talks to other Christians about this type of ministry, we actually see a lot of deep theology here that reminds us of the gospel, and I think should shape the way that we think about our lives and, and about the principle of generosity wholesale. 
So first of all, he calls it here in, in verses 6, and um, I don't have a reference for that latter piece. I think it's later in 6 or, or elsewhere, or maybe in 8. He calls this ministry an act of grace uh, in, in verses 6 and following. Uh, the Greek words for grace and gift there I threw up on screen, it's charis and charisma, uh, respectively, are very similar, obviously, and sometimes in Paul's letters, it becomes a bit of a play on words to push theology. The gift is a grace. It's an undeserved blessing, and the grace is a gift. It's kind of this idea of a grace gift uh, notion. We talk about this with spiritual gifts as well, how spiritual gifts, uh, as, as is the case in 1 Corinthians 12, are grace gifts. They're reflections of the giver, reflections of the grace of the gospel of Christ. But I think it's very interesting and helpful for us the way that he chooses to talk about this, uh, this ministry here, that he talks about it as a grace. He talks about the ministry of financial giving, this invitation to participate in it as a grace rather than, say, a work. Especially because those two ideas, works and grace, are juxtaposed and kind of contrasted, compared and contrasted a lot in the New Testament. He actually says going off of that, that this specifically is not a command. So Paul's saying, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm not telling you to do this. This is not a law. It's not a commandment. It's not an obligation. You also see in verse 3 when he talks about the Macedonians, other Christians in another part of Asia Minor, who are giving, who already gave, he says, they gave of their own accord. They wanted to do this. They too were not commanded by me. They were invited to do it. Uh, but they also gave out of their heart. They, they wanted to do this. Uh, Mark Seifert says in commentary on this verse, giving is spontaneous. It does not arise from compulsion or it is no longer giving. It's very important. Giving actually, by its very nature, is spontaneous. It does not arise from compulsion. If it does, it's no longer giving or at least no longer giving in the truest sense of the word, at least as we talk about it biblically, kind of pulling again from this idea of it not being a command in verse 6. All right? This is how we should talk. This is how we should think as Christians as well. Our good works are actually acts of God's grace in real time, physical demonstrations of the grace of God, opportunities for love in real time. Not done out of obligation or underneath a uh, conditionalized command, and certainly not things that save us from our sins, but instead they are expressions and embodiments of our salvation. He also talks about this idea in verse 7, which I like a lot. He talks about excelling in different things. He talks about excelling in faith. He talks about excelling in speech and in knowledge. But he also says, in all earnestness and in our love for you. So he wants the Corinthian Christians to excel in his love for them. This is a really interesting thing to think about, isn't it? It's kind of odd, actually. Paul wanted the Corinthians to excel in his love for them. Not excel in their own love, per se. At least he's not saying that here. But excel in someone else's love for them. But again, this too is actually a very Christian way to think, isn't it? We talk more about growing and maturing and excelling in Christ's love for us and living out of that than we do about some rote notion of following the rules. 
We've even talked recently in this series, some of you guys know this because you've been here for it, but in this series about how Jesus' love for us is greater than our love for him or others. And immersing ourselves in the former leads to more expressions of the latter or loves for, love for our neighbors or other Christians. And again, for Paul, this request to give is not a law or an obligatory command. It's a grace. He chooses to call it a grace to people, a grace to others, a grace to them in a way, not, uh, not an obligation or a compulsed idea. Something rather that should flow from Christ's grace already shown to them that they know, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but before we do, I want to highlight this one more piece here he talks about in uh, the middle portions of the passage. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should, su- should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So fairness here might actually be better translated equality or equalness because, and actually some English translations do translate it that way because as we talked about before, even in 2 Corinthians, grace and fairness don't always go together. In fact, we could actually talk about generosity in in those terms as well, right? Generosity is kind of unfair. For a gift to be given, it's given probably or usually undeservedly. Like if we work for, you know, a, a financial amount of some kind and buy something with that, and then give it to someone, uh, they haven't worked for that money or that gift, right? So it's actually a demonstration of unfairness, but a lot of times unfairness and love go together, like it does with Christ. The gospel is not fair. And so uh, he's using this a little bit differently here, but just for clarity, since that came up last week and in previous weeks, uh, equality might be a slightly better translation, getting more at the idea of what he means here. But that aside, this principle, though, has more to do with expressing the right ideas about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that across the spectrum of Christians in the world, we are all equal. God has shown no partiality, as James says. Uh, It reminded me of the the parable of the workers in the vineyard in in Matthew 20. Have you guys read this before? Uh, This parable where Jesus says, the kingdom of God in the world is like this. Or he's saying, like, this is what Christianity is kind of like. Or when the gospel comes into the world, This is sort of what you see. And he paints this word picture. And he says it's kind of like workers in a vineyard with this vineyard owner, vineyard boss, hiring workers to work in it. And he says the vineyard owner hires some workers at 9 a.m. And he hires other workers at 3 p.m. All the workers get done at 5 p.m., but they all get paid the same. And so he goes on to say, well, the workers at 9 a.m. are a bit upset about that, right? Because they worked more but they got paid the same as the guys who worked two hours. And so they're upset about it. They come to the vineyard owner. The vineyard owner just says, isn't it, like, isn't it just up to me or isn't it okay for me to do what I want with what belongs to me? And so then the parable just kind of ends abruptly. But in one sense, we could look at that and say, kind of going back to the idea of fairness, that's not really fair, right? That's an unfair idea. But in regards to the gospel, it's good news for us. It's about equality. In regards to the gospel, it's about knowing this idea, and and it's this. The amount of work we do doesn't matter in the end. The amount of work you do, the amount of good you do, in terms of salvation, does not matter in the end. Clearly, Jesus is saying this, right? 
Those who work longer and who produce more and work more with their hands and produce more sweat, blood, and tears that pour into the work of spreading God's kingdom or just the work of doing good in the world, it doesn't do more for them in relation to the one who worked less. We could just bust our butts in ministry for 80 years of our life, but we get the same reward as someone who confesses Christ on their deathbed two minutes before they take their last breath. This is what grace means, right? We're not given based off our performance or efforts. We're given based on his love. We're given based on the fact that we have the the so-called job in God's kingdom, that we are part of his family, that we're part of the vineyard. That's reward enough, we say. So again, they get paid the same, those who work less, meaning they equally enter into eternal life. Like, we'll, like we will all walk shoulder to shoulder into God's kingdom, those of us who've worked more and those of us who have worked less. Now, this doesn't preclude hard ministry work, of course, but it grounds it all in grace rather than in religious performance. And I think Paul has this idea in mind here. To go back to 2 Corinthians for a second with this in mind, Paul is saying working for equality and being generous towards one another expresses the right things about the gospel, expresses the right things about Christianity. When we work for our money but then give it to people who didn't work for it, it expresses the right things about Jesus and expresses the right things about what it means to be saved. It expresses the right things about what God has done for us. That is that we're saved by his grace or undeserved favor or merit, his kindness and love shown to us, not by our works. And Paul's saying financial giving ministries in the church and outside the church can help tell that story. It can promote that story. Paul's not saying it's wrong to be wealthy. He's not saying it's even wrong to be poor. He's saying just work for more equality to in, he's saying he's encouraging generosity in the Corinthians' lives and in their church. And he's saying when, when that's happening, it's sending all the right signals about Jesus and all the right signals about aspects of what the kingdom of God on earth really is like. He's basically saying, it, with Matthew 20 language, let's put that kind of gospel vineyard on display for all to see. And when we give, we, we give to other Christians who are poorer than us, that's what we're showing. When, when other Christians are seeing this, when non-Christians are seeing this, they're seeing the principle of grace over works. That it's God's pouring out the wealth of his, himself onto sinners like us. When we weren't even asking for it. Weren't even looking for it. Isn't that what Christmas is about? Who was asking God to come into the world or expecting it to happen in the way that it did? No one. But God came anyway. He broke into, you know, undeserving, unwanting him hard hearts, just like there was no room for him in any inn. There was no room for him in our hearts. We didn't want him. But he broke in nonetheless. Like he broke into to the world, like he, like he broke into that inn and, and was born there, laid in that manger. This is the good news of Christmas that gets embodied in the, in the financial gifts uh, that that Paul's talking about here as well, all right? And that's that, this last piece. I'm already kind of talking about this, but as we move more into the why, 
So that was kind of the how, how Paul talks about it section before, and where we see the gospel and the language he uses and how we should talk and think about our good works uh, as graces. But this is, um, this is more the why. So the why to giving to others, especially other Christians, and seeing the gospel itself in acts of generosity. And ver- verse 9 again says, For you know, Corinthians, you know, Christians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not going to talk in physical ways here. He's not going to talk in financial ways. He's going to talk in spiritual ways. All right? That though he was rich, spiritually speaking, he was God, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a, uh, if you're new to the Bible, this is kind of a, a textbook way the Bible talks about the gospel. That is in exchange terms. That Jesus became something that we were so we might become what he was. Or we might have from him something in an undeserved way that, that he had in possession himself beforehand. This is why the Bible says salvation belongs to him. It doesn't, belong, doesn't originate with us or belong to us. It belongs. It's his possession to give to us when he wants. And he does so through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what it means to be saved is to have that in his work for us, his generosity shown to us. So this verse is by far the most important verse in this whole passage, without question. Everything else is a distant second at best. Everything Paul is saying is grounded in this idea. He's saying, you know, Corinthians, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You know the grace gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know his act of grace, his work, which was exemplified in him laying down his wealth and becoming poor for you. You know, so, so we know that he said things like in his earthly ministry, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He talked in homeless terms uh, about himself, that he became poor in that way. God who had everything, wealthy in the sense that he was just God had nowhere to lay his head for those three years between his baptism and his death. But then ultimately what this is referring to is his crucifixion. Ultimately, he, he had poverty by being crucified among criminals. He was impoverished in that way. Then through that, he dispensed to us what Ephesians 2.7 calls, uh, that bo- second to bottom line there, what it calls the, the incomparable riches of his grace. And so, the Bible talks about God's love and grace and salvation from death and sin and, and, and hell. It talks about that in wealth and mon- monetary terms a lot in the Bible. It's not actual money, it's spiritual money. We are wealthy in the fact that he did this for us. He loved us to this end. So for the rich to give to the poor, and in this case for the Corinthians, which they're more wealthy, and in that giving to become a bit more poor is to demonstrate the crucifixion when God spent it all for all of us in, in love. That's the idea uh, that Paul's going to come back to actually next, uh, next week or next time we preach, uh, preach on this on January 3rd. And then I think the following week as well. It's going to be a huge part of his argument. Uh, and so don't miss this. This massive deceit for understanding, uh, but also for our way of thinking and our living as, as believers. Another reason, though, he, uh, he says all this, um, or I'll put it this way, 
This is another reason why it's important for Paul to say that we are to give uh, not out of obligation. Okay, so he's saying to Christians, uh, this is not a command. I'm not telling you to do this. He's, he's making space for them to make that choice, like the Macedonians, to give uh, out of their own accord. This is actually the true reason behind that, and that is because God didn't give to you out of obligation. God didn't give to you in an arm-twisted kind of way. If, if, if God did give according to a command, it would communicate that he gave to us in a constrained way where he was forced into it, like there was a law above him. But of course that's not true, right? But this, again, this is why Christians should act and talk this way because if we don't, we send the wrong signals about Christ and the wrong signals about the gospel that God had to give to us or he was forced into it or obligated into um, giving, giving us grace. But again, of course that's not true. That's not the gospel. The Bible does not teach that. Jesus never suggests it. This is also actually why we say grace is better than law. In fact, it's why they're at odds. Law can't produce this type of generosity. In fact, it precludes it. Think about it this way. To give out of one's own love is greater than giving because someone told you to. This is just kind of common sense, isn't it? Or it should be. If we're giving to someone because we want to, because we have love for them, because we thought of them, like if someone gave you a gift and said, I I was just thinking about you and I thought you would love this. I just wanted to give this to you. Or if someone said, yeah, I'm re-gifting this. Or I I just thought you'd, I don't know, you'd you'd need this. Or someone told me I should give this to you because maybe you needed this. Like obviously we'd see more love in the former, right, than than the latter. God was not compulsed. He saved in a non obligated way. Isn't that amazing news? He wanted to save. He gave his one and only son, not because there was a law above him saying, this is the law that you have to oblige God of the universe. There's no law above God. He's God. So God willingly, not under a command, but because he wanted to, gave. And this is why it's important for Christians to love each other this way, to give to each other this way, and not, not, in, a, not in a command-based, uh, conditionalized way. And, and again, the law then precludes true generosity. The law precludes generosity because it takes the love and choice out of it. The gospel, however, is the story of God's love for us, and, and it actually becomes the power behind our non-obligated acts of generosity towards each other because again we live out the fact that God gave to us in that way spending the highest of prices to save us from our spiritual indebtedness all right so a couple of things here to close um, there's tons to say about this but I um, I hope it was clear there are kind of two angles of it to this like there are a lot sometimes in the letters of the New Testament there is a human side and a divine side there there is a um, you know, take this with you and think about your life. Think about how you can love other Christians uh, through the lens of what Paul is saying here. But there's also a divine side that has much more to do with Jesus than it does about you. And so, it, it, in, or another way to say it would be, in one sense, you're in the active role here. And in another sense, you're in the very passive role.
because Christ is the ultimate actor when it comes to giving in redemptive history. But let me just read this in summary. The one, one huge takeaway I think we need to bring is our lives don't belong to us. And that includes our money. Our money also does not belong to us. God owns it all, right? He made it all. We, we believe in a God who made everything in the universe. That includes stuff. That includes money. It includes our bodies. But we believe we were saved. It means Jesus bought us back from something. Now, that's 1 Corinthians 6, I believe, that he bought us back. And, and then he says, because of that, you don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. So live as though that's the case. It's good news. Our salvation then also, so whether it's our lives or our money, uh, it, it hints at this idea. Our salvation also doesn't belong to us, right? It doesn't originate here. So give, give, and give some more to your church family, whether financial or otherwise. Not out of obligation, but willingly. Excel in faith, excel in God's love for you. Then let that spill over into acts of generosity full of willing love for others who don't deserve it. Uh, but then second, let, uh, let this be a reminder that this is simply, uh, it's, it's just not an example to follow alone, but it is a gospel to cherish. And we get that again from verse 9. Uh, but also verse 1 here, it's, if you go back and look at the bookends of this passage, when he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches, then in verse 15 he talks about whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered had uh, had little or got a little had no lack. He's talking about fairness. Some of you guys know this. I think I mentioned this to start, but he's talking about the manna bread that God gave his people there in the desert, which we know, interestingly, Jesus calls himself the true manna in John 6. Uh, he is the true one who sustains. He's the true one who nourishes. That song we sang before the sermon, that he gives his body for spiritual food, right? That is straight from the mouth of God himself. Uh, a la Christ in John 6 uh, in, in, in surrounding context. All that to say, in verses 1 and 15, the bookends of this passage, you could read that, and even not knowing the context, you could say, you know, what is he actually talking about here? Or who is he talking about? Because this can be taken two ways, right? He's talking about the financial collection for the saints, and yet he's not at the same time. He's talking about the ultimate grace of God given through Jesus Christ. He's talking about the God of the universe becoming poor unto death for you and me. He's talking about the most generous, least stingy act of love ever shown in history, which is when God loved us by giving his one and only son for us. And it's an invitation then to, from verse 15, gather that. Gather the gospel. Gather up the manna of God. Gather up the fact that you've been loved to hell and back. Loved to the uttermost. Share it with others. Make sure there's equalness in your church. Or as Hebrews 10, I believe, says, ensure that all obtain the grace of God. Ensure that everyone, yourself, your family, your friends, ensure that, ensure that you are eating the manna. Ensure that you're all eating and obtaining the fact that it's not by works that you're saved, but eating the fact that it's by the grace of God, by the bread of Jesus' body alone that you and I are saved. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that it's, um, 
It invites us to participate in a story and in something that uh, you have already done and you are still doing and you're going to continue to do uh, all the way into eternity. And that is be the one who is the source. You, you are the one and you will always be the one who is the headwaters of the stream. Uh, you're the source, you're the vine and we're the branches. You're the one who produces the generosity so that we can just step into it and let the stream just carry us downstream a little bit further. So this is really all about you and your act of generosity. So let our acts and works be considered graces, uh, not obediences to commands alone, uh, but actually just graces, demonstrations of grace, acts of grace, grace gifts uh, to other Christians in our midst, all done underneath the umbrella of the ultimate act of grace, which was not a law, it was not a command, uh, it was a, a non-obligatory, willing act of love when the Son of God laid himself down. When he was pierced, when he was striped, when he was laid upon by that crown of thorns, when he was stripped naked and spit upon and mocked and misunderstood and derided, when people wagged their heads at him in disgust, all of that was done for us. That's why he was born. That's why it was a manger and not a golden cradle in the very beginning uh, to, to remind us that he came to be laid amongst the germs of our sins for us that we might be saved. Praise be to God that we have that exchange. The, the Son of God became poor, spiritually speaking, impoverished by our sins on the cross so we might become wealthy in him. Uh, God, leave us here encouraged by that, whether we've heard that a billion times or whether it's the first time we're hearing this, that Jesus loved us to hell and back. Thank you for, for being not stingy with your love, God, and for saving us today. In Christ we pray. Amen.